Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 31 through 39. Uh, You can follow along in your bulletin, but you'll only get about three quarters of the way through it. Uh, My mistake, I added a little bit more uh, throughout the week. And so if you want to follow along in your own Bible, in the Pew Bible, on your smartphone Bible, or just listen along, uh, we're really glad you're here. Just a note about the squirrel. Uh, and it, it's not that we just made up a mascot. I mean, there's a squirrel that regularly gets into the church. And uh, if you are uh, a male, you might not know this, but the females know this, that that squirrel loves to hang out in the women's bathroom. We've, we've called the police about him. He's a creeper. And uh, we've, we've, we keep getting him out of the building, but somehow he keeps trying to come back. So there is a squirrel. That's where the origins of that come from. And, uh, and so we've put him on a shirt. And uh, we, just to thank him for coming to visit. He's so cute, uh, but should not be in the bathrooms. And so we're working on that. So to all the women, I want to apologize. Um, anyway, it's, it's great to have you with us. Uh, my name is Sean Slay. I'm the pastor here. And we are so glad to have you because we know there are a million different things uh, that you could be doing with your time this morning. For instance, you could be over at the University of Virginia, I, don't, I mean, University of Tennessee. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Arkansas and Tennessee are playing baseball today. Arkansas is number one in the nation. They split uh, the game last night. Uh, Tennessee hit a home run in the bottom, uh, a three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth to split the series. So they play today to see who's the best in the world, or at least in the nation, at least in the nation in the NCAA. But it's a big game, is my point. Or you could be at home watching YouTube videos about how to care for your bald head so that it doesn't burn like it did last week. Or you could be at home uh, finishing off all those licorice flavored jelly beans that are still at the bottom of your Easter basket underneath all that green grass that has been sitting there for the last seven weeks uh, because we're still in Easter. That's the joke. Uh, Anyway, but this is not working. And so uh, anyway, you're here and you're regretting it. But what I would say is there's nothing better you could do with your time than worship Jesus and to consider his claims upon your life. And so I really do want to thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We eat jelly beans together, play ba- you know, watch baseball together, read the Bible together, pray together. So that we can remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. 
And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. People are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we've been in this series throughout uh, the season of Easter on the gifts of resurrection as seen in the letter to the Romans. And we continue that this morning as we think about the resurrected and the ascended love of God, all right? The resurrected and the ascended love of God. So with that in mind, let's look together. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful Uh, for this your word that you are a God who isn't hidden nor are you silent but you are one who delights to reveal yourself and to reveal your love to us you've done that in your word by your spirit and ultimately you've done it in the person and work of Jesus and so it's our prayer now that you really would open our hearts and our ears and our minds and our eyes uh, to see the great and the lovely abundant love that you have for us in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century was a man named Karl Barth. And there's a story about Barth that goes like this. During his last tour of America, he was giving a lecture uh, in the chapel at the University of Chicago. And after the lecture, he hosted a Q&A. And so during the Q&A, a student stood up and he asked Dr. Bart, uh, could you summarize your theology in one simple sentence? Now, uh, if you've ever read Karl Bart, you know that that would be a feat. I mean, uh, Karl Bart uh, is wordy. Uh, he's oftentimes confusing. If you, go to his, if you go to the Goodreads page, you'll see that there are about 232 books that have been attributed to him. If you've read his kind of magnum opus, it's called The Dogmatics. Uh, it's 14 volumes. Each book is about 800 pages. And so he likes to talk. And, uh, or at least write. And so uh, he paused and he replied saying this. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, 
for the Bible tells me so. If you could sum up all of your theology in one sentence, what would it be? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I love this story because uh, he's saying all of theology is summed up in this simple song, this song that many of us learned on the knees of our mothers and our fathers. And yet, sadly, as we grow up, we tend to complicate the song. We, we really want to add a lot more verses to the song. We want to make it more complicated, and over time, we even tend to forget it. And this is one of the reasons that I love that here at Redeemer, we sing Jesus Loves Me after all our baptisms. And the reason we sing Jesus Loves Me is not just sort of it's sweet and it's cute and all the mothers cry, uh, and fathers, uh, but we sing it because we want the beginning of our life with God. We want it driven, sung into our hearts, that God's way with us is the way of love. And I think that this is very important for us because uh, there are so many songs that are being sung to us over and over and over again. The world and the flesh and the devil are singing to us. Our own hearts uh, sing of our guilt and our shame. The providence and the struggles of this world, right? The trials that are before us, they are all telling us that God does not love us. And, and, and the older we get, is it not true that it, some, for some reason it becomes easier to believe that God is really just angry at us. He doesn't love us. That God is really against us. He is not for us. But as we read this text, what we see is that the resurrected and the ascended Jesus wants us to know that Jesus loves us. The resurrected and the ascended Jesus want us to be able to sing with great confidence and great joy that Jesus loves me. That Jesus loves me. Did you say that with me? Jesus loves me. And this is Paul's point, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a long list of things, but I don't know if you heard it. But what Paul essentially says is this, nothing he says nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing in all of creation. And what that means is nothing that you do and nothing that has been done to you. Nothing that you are and nothing that you aren't. Nothing that has been said by you or said against you. Paul is saying that because of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, I am sure of this. That nothing can separate us from God's love. So verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? Well, I think we say a lot of things. <laughs> and uh, as you read this, what, can, what should we say about things if God is for us, who can be against us? It's as if Paul's sort of being like Bruce Lee at the beginning of a fight. He's inviting the conflict. He's saying, bring it on. Give me your list. Tell me what you think. And sadly, I think for many of us as Christians, uh, we spend a lot of our life and a lot of our quiet time 
listing all the reasons that God either loves us or he doesn't love us. And we spend all this time listing all these reasons that he loves us. God loves me because I'm smart. He loves me because I'm good. He loves me because I'm religious. He loves me because I'm nice. He loves me because I care about those important things that are a big deal in our culture. He loves me because I'm popular and bougie and involved. And he loves me because I'm powerful. Others of us are making our list of all these reasons that he doesn't love me. My life is hard. My health is bad. Uh, I'm not powerful. I'm not connected. I'm not popular. I'm not good. I'm messed up. But what I want you to do is I want you to listen again to what Paul says. Paul says, if God is for us, if God is for us, this is important. God is telling us in this text that he is for us. And if God says that he is for us, then he is for us. And if he says that he is for us, I'm not sure why we spend so much of our life uh, feeling the authority to say that God is not for me. I, I don't know why we feel the authority to say what God is for and what he is against. If God says that he is for us, then he is for us. And part of faith means that you take God at his word. And if God has said that he is for you, then by faith you take him at his word that he is for you. One of my favorite shows is called Psych, and it's this buddy comedy about these two fake psychic detectives. One's name is Gus, one's name is Sean, and Sean is always talking. Uh, Sean is always talking over Gus, he's always speaking for Gus, he orders for Gus, he introduces Gus, and oftentimes Gus will suck his teeth and he'll say, man, you don't tell me who I am, right? You don't tell me what I am. And, uh, and I think that Paul's sort of doing this, that God is sort of sucking his teeth and saying, man, you don't tell me what I am. You don't tell me what I'm for. You don't tell me what I'm against. I tell you. And I have told you that I am for you, that I'm actually for you. And if I am for you, then I am for you. And I think that this ought to radically change the way that we think about God because I think most of us, when we think about God, we sort of think about him the way the kids in the sandlot thought about the guy who ran the junkyard, <laughs> even though they were wrong about who ran the junkyard. Is it not true that when we think about God, we think about him as sort of that angry old man who lives next door who's always mad at us and our kids because the ball keeps going in the yard? Or do we think about God as sort of just this distant, passive God who just doesn't care about us and keeps forgetting our name and doesn't care about our life? But you know, rather than that being who God is, uh, maybe that's how you feel about yourself. Maybe you're the one who's angry at yourself. Maybe you're the one who doesn't really care about yourself because God has said that he is for us and if he is for us, then he is for us. Because the Bible tells us he's for us, and if God is for us, then the text says, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we can all come up with a list of people who are against us. We can all come up with a, people, a list of people who don't like us. Uh, maybe it's your spouse. Uh, maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your roommates. Maybe the world is against you. Uh, maybe your body is against you. And you know what? Maybe that's true. 
Maybe all those people, maybe all those things are against you. But that does not mean that God is. And why would we give power to those created things? Why would we give those created things power to define God's relationship with us? If God says that he is for you, therefore he is for you. And this is God we're talking about. (laughs) I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe. Right? The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who made the birds to sing and the sun to shine and and the flowers just to burst forth in beauty and praise. He's the one who says that he is for you. And because he is for you, you can confidently say, Jesus loves me. Right? Jesus loves me. Would you say that with me? Jesus loves me. But how do you know? How do you know that Jesus loves you? Well, the Bible tells me so. (laughs) Well, how does the Bible tell you so? Well, the Bible tells us so by showing us Jesus. The Bible wants us to see God's love for us in Christ. Uh, Look again at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, I want you to think about what's going on here. What's happening is that Paul is inviting us just to sort of stop thinking about yourself and to start thinking about what God has done. He's inviting you to look at him. And what he's saying to us is this. He's saying, look, if I have given the very thing that I love more than anything else, if I have given that for you, if I've given my son for you, then how could you doubt my love for you? If God was out to get you, he would never give himself for you, right? And this is important because what he's saying is that God the Father did not spare his beloved son. And I think that this is significant because um, I don't think as Christians we mean to do this, but we often do it. And uh, we often pit the Trinity against itself, And so what we say, or what we think, what we feel, is that Jesus loves us, but the Heavenly Father hates us. That Jesus loves us, but the Father despises us, or the Father is just angry at us. And sadly, this has tremendous implications, not only for destroying the Trinity, right, but experientially, In our lives, it has tremendous implications because uh, we might want to draw near to Jesus, but we're really afraid of the Father's love. We're really afraid that the Father is just scary and angry. But it's important for us to see verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Yes, Jesus loves you, but so does the Father. The Father gave his son because he loves this is just john three sixteen all over again for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that because god loves he gives and what this tells us is that our god is not this angry stingy god but our god is a generous loving god and he is one who gives all that he loves for those that he loves 
There's a famous old English pastor named Octavius Winslow. Um, I wish we were still having children because Octavius Winslow Slate would be an amazing name. Um, I don't know. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, but uh, just kidding. I don't know. I'm getting no. Okay. But anyway, there's this famous English pastor named Octavius Winslow. And uh, he's, he's famous for his reflection on this verse. And reflecting on this verse, he said this. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. Who gave up Jesus? It was the Father for love. And notice in the conclusion of this reflection uh, in Paul, Paul says this. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an amazing statement. Because if God has already given his beloved, why would he ever withhold his love? If he's already given his beloved, why would he ever withhold his love? And what I want you to see here is that God's disposition towards his people is that of generous, overflowing love. And, and this is important because uh, when we think about Christianity, we often go immediately to the cross, and that's a great place for us to go. And when we look at the cross, we can interpret it in a lot of different ways. And so we can look at the cross and just think judgment, right? We can look at the cross and just think guilt. We can look at the cross and just think threat. And that is uh, partially true because on the cross, what's happening is that Jesus is bearing our guilt. And on the cross, he's not only bearing our guilt, he's bearing uh, the condemnation and the judgment that we deserve for our guilt. And when you look at the cross, it is a, th- it is a promise, right? That, that God is just and that God will right all wrongs and that God will condemn all that is evil and all sin will be judged and all sin will be condemned and it will either be judged and condemned on the last day when we all stand before him or it has already now been judged and condemned in Jesus on the cross. And so when we look to the cross, what we see is not only guilt, not only judgment, but more than anything, what we see is the embodiment of God's great overflowing love for his people. When we look at the cross, we see his generous love, that that he is one who would give himself for us, that he is one who would bear our guilt, that he would bear our judgment, that he would be condemned in our place. And so what the cross is doing, it is proving to us God's unfailing generous love towards us. What the cross is inviting us to sing is that Jesus loves me. Right, Jesus loves me. Would you say that with me? Jesus loves me. Uh, Even as we reflect on this, though, is it not true that the guilt and the shame rise up? And is it not true that you often hear the condemning voices and often, often those voices, they come and those voices are actually true. They often are speaking true things about us. And Paul, Paul picks that up, that theme up in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, there are a lot of charges that can be brought against God's elect. Uh, and a lot of them are true. 
And uh, one of the things that we learn when we read the Bible is that the devil is the accuser of God's people. And people, they, they condemn us all the time. They shame us and tell us we're not good enough, we're not right enough, we're immoral, we're not the right kinds of people. Uh, and then we condemn and judge ourselves. As we think about our shame and our guilt, they well up within us and we beat ourselves up and tell us we haven't been good enough, we're not worthy. And uh, what we all know to be true about ourselves is that there are things that are really deep down that we don't want anyone to know about. <laughs> uh, and yet we know they're true. And when we think about those things, we wonder, could God actually really love me? And Paul says, verse 34, who is to condemn? Who's the one who has the right to condemn? It's not the devil. It's not your neighbor. It's not you. But it is Jesus who died. It is Jesus who died. And this is amazing because what Paul's trying to do is he's inviting us into sort of that courtroom. And it, it's as, as if everyone is bringing their charges against us. And, and Jesus hears all of them and he listens to all the witnesses. And then he, it's like he goes to all the witnesses and he says, I've heard your complaint. And you're not wrong. But I'm the judge. I'm the judge and I will be condemned. He's not saying the charges are false. He looks us in the eye and he says, look, I know it's all true. And so do you. But I got this. So go in peace. There's a great story about an old Scottish pastor named uh, Dr. Alexander White. And one evening, uh, Dr. White was in his study uh, working on some church, some presbytery business with another older pastor. And that business was contentious. That business was, was deep. It was thick. It was, it was filled with conflict. And they stayed together talking throughout the night, working on these things. And at the end of the evening, the older pastor looked up from the table with this really heavy heart. And he said to Dr. White, now, sir, do you have any word of comfort for an old sinner such as myself? Do you have any comfort? Do you have a word of comfort for an old sinner such as myself? And Dr. White looked up at the man. He rose from his chair and he walked around the table and he grabbed the older pastor's hand and he said, Micah 7, 18. Micah 7, 18, he delights in showing mercy. What word do you have for a sinner, an old sinner, a balding sinner such as myself? That he delights in showing mercy. The next morning, uh, Dr. White uh, went to his study and there on, at his study was a letter waiting for him. He opened the letter and began to read and it said, Dear friend, I will never doubt him again. Guilt had hold of me. I was near the gates of hell. But that word of God comforted me and I will never doubt him again. I will never despair again. If the devil casts my sins in my teeth, I will say, yes, it is all true and you cannot tell the half of it. But I have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. 
it is all true and you do not know the half of it, but I have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. And the mercy that our God delights to show is a mercy that then gets worked out in redemptive history. See this in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And I think that this is really important because it's not just the emotion of God's love for us that saves us. It's not his feelings so much for us that save us, but it's his emotion toward us, his love towards us that moves him to act in love for us in order to save us. And so what does the father do? What does the son do? What does the spirit do? God becomes man. God doesn't want to stay distant from us. He actually becomes one of us to draw near to us and he lives among us to reveal the love of the father to us and he doesn't just live among us but then what does he do he suffers in our place he is condemned for us he takes the judgment we deserve he goes to the cross and he dies for our justification but not only does he die for our justification he's raised from the dead so that we would know that the father accepted the sacrifice and that we're pleasing in his sight that we're now righteous in him and that though we die we will live but more than that as the text says he has ascended he has ascended into heaven like the sweet aroma of the incense in the temple, like the, like the sacrifice, the smells of the sacrifices wafting up into heaven, bringing pleasure to God, receiving the sacrifice on behalf of us. Jesus is lifted up as the sweet sacrifice, the aroma of praise to the Father. And the Father receives him with great joy in his presence and gives him the seat of honor with him in the throne room of heaven. And there he sits with the Father, the resurrected Jesus, there to intercede for us. And to intercede is, uh, what it means is that uh, you spe he speaks on our behalf. Like he represents us before the Father. And here's what's amazing is that, that, that God loved us uh, so much that he desired to be with us that he united himself to us in the person of Jesus and this is amazing because in our confession what we say is the Lord Jesus is the only redeemer of God's elect and the Lord Jesus uh, who uh, was the son of is the son of the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And what that means is that in Jesus, our humanity has been lifted up into the throne room of heaven where God sits with his son, Jesus, both God and man, two distinct natures. And Jesus, as God and man, speaks on behalf of humanity bringing all of our sorrows, bringing all of our struggles, bringing all of our suffering, all of our sin to the Father. And this is what we sing about in that lovely hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Uh, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. 
He ever lives above for me to intercede. They pour his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race. It now sprinkles the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. And because Jesus is ascended and pleading on our behalf and representing humanity before the Father, we can say this, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. And what I hope you see here is that as Christians... Uh, we look to Jesus to assure us of God's love. We look to his incarnation, his life among us. We look to his death for us. We look to his resurrection for us. And more than that, as Paul says, we look to his ascension into heaven. Because our God has united us to himself in such a way that when he died, what? We died. That when he rose, we rose. And more than that, when he ascended into heaven, we ascended into heaven with him. And now humanity sits with the Father delighting in his people. Jesus, the true man interceding as the cosmic royal priest for those he loves. One theologian says it this way. He says, Jesus stands risen from the dead at the right hand of God and there intercedes on my behalf. He comprehends that I, a sinner, am righteous. He knows my imprisonment in order to be my freedom and my most gracious anguish of my death in order to be my life. And so it is that I know That no man and no thing can separate me from the holy, incomprehensible love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying again is that the life, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus are all the embodiment of God's love for us. And because of what God has done, we can say with great confidence, I am sure of this, that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? Jesus loves me. Right? Jesus loves me. Can you say that with me? Jesus loves me. And again, that's what this table is about, that God spreads this table for us to let us know that he loves us. And as we come to this table, what he's saying is, look at all that I have given. I have not withheld myself from you, but I have given myself to you. And as we come to the table, uh, what's happening is the Spirit in some way, in some spiritual way, has united us to himself and lifted us up into the throne room of heaven so that we might feast upon the Father's love for us. And so he says, come and taste and see the love of God for you. And with each bite and with each taste of the bread and the wine, God is saying to you, just as you taste these things, just as you ingest these things, just as you handle these things, 
so I love you. Right? The table tells us that Jesus loves me. Would you say that one last time with me? Jesus loves me. Therefore, I invite you to rise and lift up your